we have swum with sharks and, and it's an amazing experience. And in the business world, sharks are those people that try and get you, they try and dupe you, they try and steal from you. And I think that a lot of young entrepreneurs are not prepared for that world. They believe everything they come across, much like the world of fake news. You actually have to have a good set of diversity across an organization in order to be able to understand your target market. Readers are leaders. Did you know that the average CEO reads 60 books a year? In the age of change, we must constantly learn, unlearn, and relearn to become future fit. As Mark Twain famously quoted, a person who won't read has no advantage over one who can't read. Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant, and become future fit? want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put a kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Before we start the show, if you want to get more inspired, you can visit www.bizcommunity.com. And read my column called Future Fit Yourself, where I unpack hot issues in the marketing and business arena to set you up for success. I would also like to remind you that tickets to the Future Fit networking events are selling fast. So don't forget to book your ticket. We have speakers from South Africa's most inspiring entrepreneurs, celebrities, alchemists and newsmakers to debate, learn, inspire, connect. Now don't worry. You're not going to get speakers fatigue. We have very fresh new talent and very fresh perspectives to share with you. So go to booyah.co.za. So it's www.booboo-yah.co.za to book your ticket today or contact my team at hello at carmenmurray.com. Welcome to our audience and thanks for all your loyal support that you have shown us. We are growing day by day. Things are going fabulous. So excited. And for those of you new to the show, please do subscribe as we have a lot of exciting podcasts coming up that you don't want to miss. Today's episode is a book fit episode. And we have Gavin Moffat, the author of Swimming with Sharks, Simple Business Guidelines for a Complex World. Gavin, welcome. Yay, thank you. Hurrah, hurrah. I'm actually a booyah girl, so I should actually say booyah. 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 <laughs> if you had to be at a party, how would you introduce yourself? That's such an interesting question. I seldom go to parties, but what I would start <laughs> off with is, uh, hi, I'm Gavin Moffat. I've learned tremendous things in my life, primarily from my three children. Um, and I think I'm probably more qualified than most other parents in this room. Can I have your phone number? Oh my God. 
gosh, that is such a pickup line. Then my wife would turn around and go, <laughs> no, that was such a bad pickup line. And, and we'd have a conversation. <laughs> that, that's actually reverse psychology. I like that. <laughs> well, as you can see, I've got the book here with me in studio and full of post-it notes highlighted everywhere. I read the book and I love how you you simplified everything in the book, but it spoke to me because it really reinforced some of the 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 things that I evangelize to my clients and customers all the time and getting them prepared for the 21st century and getting them future fit. So a great book and really, as um, I think Michael Jordan said, it's full of nuggets and gems packed with it. Thank you. But I could really relate to the book. So well done on that. Thank you. I, I actually want to read a few of the reviews that you've received. Uh, quite an impressive list of names. One of them was Michael Jordan, former CEO of F&B, venture capitalist. He says that it, it is not often that you find a single book that covers so many topics and yet get to the essence of each. Gavin Moffat has created a book full of nuggets, gems that provide you with the insight in business and self. His years of work with countless companies has guided his thought process and brought the realization that we make things too complicated. Amen to that. His job to make businesses human. Great read. Arthur Goldstock, by the way, who actually visited our studio a, a while ago. You must go and check out that episode if you haven't listened to it. He says that it's a practical insight with a constant focus on the human element of business, a critical element that is easily neglected. Richard Mulholland, it is a series of learnings wrapped up in a very powerful analogy. His love for scuba the author's passion is clear and the lessons came through fast and hard. This is one of those rare books that you need to read with a highlighter in hand. And I can vouch for that because that's exactly how I did it. I started reading and hardly came up for air. I feel a bit embarrassed by all of those, but that's awesome, yes. Yeah, no, I think it's a great review and it, it, that's exactly why you are here today because it really, just by what they had to say, I was very intrigued and I was not disappointed. Thank you. So there is a scuba diving thread that holds the book together. Tell me about your passion for scuba. How did it, this all came about and what was your intent writing this book? So the, the scuba diving thing came along just after I got divorced. I was going through a I need to prove myself and find cool things to do phase. So I obviously tried skydiving, which was amazing. I tried microlighting, which I loved to death and ended up owning my own microlight. And somebody said, try scuba diving. I thought, oh, a dangerous sport. Let me go. When in fact, scuba diving is the last thing it is, is a dangerous sport. And so I, uh, the course I found pretty simple, and I did my first dive off Sorduana Bay. Oh, uh, nice. In, and it was a rapturous experience, dropping into the ocean there in this huge aquarium with this enormous variety of fish in front of me. It was literally... <laughs> so it was an amazing experience. And, and from then, I've, I've just loved scuba diving. And, and um, my wife and I uh, have done it together. In fact, we're, we're almost on the same number of dives. And we've also uh, gone off to the side and done something called technical diving. Uh, and technical diving is where you go deeper than a recreational depth mm -hmm. and you have to use mixed gases and a variety of other things. So I'll, I'll keep that conversation separate. But <laughs> the, the reason why the book is related directly to that is because it's such a huge passion. 
And I believe that there are strong analogies to be had between the way in which you do scuba diving, so the preparation, the enjoyment of it, and then the wrap-up afterwards, and the way in which you need to look at, run, approach your business. And so I thought that that was a great golden thread. Um, And obviously, swimming with sharks as a phrase is, well, we have swum with sharks, and, and it's an amazing experience. And in the business world, sharks are those people that try and get you. They try and dupe you. They try and steal from you. And I think that a lot of young entrepreneurs are not prepared for that world. They believe everything they come across, much like the world of fake news. And so I wanted to talk to those people in a way that said to them, there are things that you can do to prepare yourself for your business. And if you're already in business, there are things that you can do to do better in business. And I want to wrap that all in a lovely scuba diving analogy. But what I had to do was drop on the subtitle. Otherwise, people would have gone, oh, a book about sharks. (laughs) So it's simple business guidelines for a complex world. You start off by talking about your career and being characterized as uh, the dichotomy of an autocratic and hands-on person like that's how you Mm. used to manage Mm. what is the realization that you have made so I think one of my biggest challenges is I've always been a bit of a control freak Mm -hmm. Um, so I've always liked to control things wherever I can and so what I've learned over time is that that isn't useful it's firstly not useful for me and it's not useful for anyone that I work with So over time, what I've tried to do is give people a sense of trust by giving them an explanation of what it is that I want and then allowing them to use whatever they have, bring it to the party and do the job as it needs to be done and then do corrective action after that, whatever that corrective action is. And so it's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard because I do like to control because I often feel that the the only way to get the job done properly is to do it myself. The other part that I've learned from that is that that's really arrogant. The assumption that I can, I'm the single best person to do the job is it's quite a big assumption. Mm. And so I've also had to temper that with an understanding that actually I have a lot to learn. And so it's better for me to allow people more of an amorphous management area around me than it is to try and be controlling. Controlling doesn't produce the best results in human being. Having said that... Laissez-faire is also not the way to go. So going the complete opposite end and letting everybody do whatever they want with very little management Mm. is also not something. But uh, one of the key parts of of the way in which we look at new team members is we find the right person for the job and then management becomes less of an issue. Mm. So find a person who has the right intellect, the right set of skills, the right attitude, Mm. and then the management of them isn't as important because you should have found the right person to do the job in the first place. I like that. And and one of the things that I'd like to add to that, so there's a, a big debate. You, as a person that starts your own business, is the visionary of the business. Mm. And Simon Sinek says that start with why, getting people aligned with your vision and where you want to go with your business. Some people would say, yes, that's true, but it's not possible for other people because they say nobody could ever have the same vision as you. And how do you motivate people to have the same vision because they would never have your vision? And it, and, and for me, I find that to be um, hard because I think it's very important that people are on fire for the same purpose. It would be wonderful in an ideal world if everyone could share my passion for what it is that I'm doing. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that anyone can share my passion to my degree. What I do need to do is I need to have an idea and be able to talk about it enthusiastically enough in a way that it makes an impact, makes a difference, does something meaningful. And I think that becomes more and more important as time goes on. What we do has to be in some way meaningful. So uh, as an example, one of the things we do is diversity and inclusion work. 
And for me, that is really meaningful. And it's not difficult for me to get other people passionate about talking about, for example, co-gender work. Because I have so much passion, we have people coming to us and saying, can we work for you? And so I've never been in a position like that before. So obviously I have the subject matter that is right. I have the passion that is right, the enthusiasm that is right, and that breeds following. And that's part of what it is. You're almost trying to create a mini cult. That's like what a religion. You're, tra- yeah, you're trying to create a cult. I love that. You're trying to get somebody to go, I dig what you're saying so much. I believe in what you're saying so much. I want to come and work for you because you're doing a cause. Yes, the salary is great. Yes, the perks are great. All of that is awesome but I believe in your cause. So you're trying to create a mini cult. And I don't think I've been that good at creating mini cults. I, I mean, it's quite hard. I think Amazon, in your book, you refer to Amazon, you know, have this this uh, philosophy of it's almost like joining a religion. And if you look at Zappos as well, it's exactly the same type of, of environment. And I think it's absolutely essential. I myself, I come out of the hospitality industry many, many years. That was my utopia. That's where my whole love and passion for customer experiences started because it's all about serving the customer and the guest and making their lives spectacular. And um, getting into the business world really just uh, shook my foundations. But the one thing is when I was working in that industry, I was a autocrat. I was hands-on. I didn't trust anybody to do what they wanted to do. And I was on top of them all the time because nobody could fail under my management. And um, people hated me. <laughs> and, and so if, if you think about that, how difficult is it to be the CEO of, for example, a retail chain yeah. who is sitting at the top of the food chain and you have got 5,000 employees around the country who touch your customers every single day? Mm. How difficult must it be being that CEO and trusting all of those employees that they will do what is right for the business and right for the customer. It must mm. be very difficult to be that kind of CEO. Oh, for and, sure. And if you can create a cult-like environment within that company, and Zappos is a perfect example of that, those, those, those employees really seem to care. They go the extra mile. You're, you're forever seeing case studies and examples of how they treat customers so well. Yeah. If you can do that, then you're able to hand over the trust of the brand yeah. to those people. I mean, just um, to, uh, to add to that point, Zappos, a very interesting story of what I read in one of my books uh, recently as we are talking book fits was there was this incident that happened with a customer they were and I actually mentioned it before in one of my other episodes they the mother has passed away and they found a pair of shoes that the mother has purchased um, and it was over a year in this box never been worn and they were trying to clean out her cupboards and stuff and they called Zappos and they said to them listen we have this pair of shoes that ex- the um, return date has expired but they've empowered that employee to say you know what, this is not our actual policy, but it's okay. For you, we're going to do this. And then a week later or a couple of days later, they actually sent the father flowers from the whole team to say we our condolences, we're sorry for your loss. And just by giving their, their staff this, this power is, is really refreshing. And this is the thing is, is, as you're saying, by giving people power to make their own decisions, there needs to be some sort of structure. What is allowed? Zappos is a perfect example. You get fired if you don't abide by the culture. But at the end of the day, you are serving the person at the end of the day. And you need to trust people to take initiative. And, and so one of the cornerstones that, that creates that within an organization is if you put the customer in the center. If you put the customer in the center, then you suddenly see that the way in which you deal with that customer has to change and you can no longer have 
the sets of values that you have, or you can no longer have the policies and procedures that you have. You have to change the way in which you do your business if you put the customer at the center. And one of the things that that means is exactly like the Zappos example, you now have to empower front-of-line staff to be able to keep that customer happy Mm. because what is their job? Keep the customer happy. That's what they're focused on. So I, th- I think that the customer at the center is one of the things that businesses tend not to do. And there's, there's a myriad examples around every single day where you can see that that's not in fact the case. Mm. Classic example is you can still today go online, order something from retailers here in South Africa, not small retailers, and it'll get delivered to you in 7 to 14 days. I kid you not. Still today. And they're proud of that. They've got it in big yeah. letters on their websites. <laughs> How insane is it? Uh, you know, when, when Amazon was doing its thing, we were having conversations in 1998, 1999 about how incredible it was that Amazon could deliver something in one to two working days, obviously in certain places in the States. That was in 1999. How is it that we still have South African business who thinks that 7 to 14 working days is acceptable? I totally agree. And I think one of the most disabling things within the corporate environment is the fact that these punitive policies that are put in place is so counterproductive for the organization. But the problem is, is that the person that's got the face-to-face interaction with the customer has no power. No, they don't. And because they don't have power, they can't you know, inform the situation. I mean, I've read of many, many case studies where there's huge problems, a decline in, in the the book, the profits are falling, they're losing customers, they don't understand why. And all they could have done is just ask their staff what's happening and they actually have the answers. Mo- mo- many of your answers are sitting within your organization. You just have to ask. They're also sitting with your customers. So 100%. if you got in touch with your customers in some way, if you did some mystery shopping, if you actually experienced what a customer experiences, you'd know. An easy example, I went to a sports retail chain to buy a backpack. Uh, they didn't have one, but they had one in Cape Town. And they told me it would take 10 days to get from Cape Town to Joburg. Then proceeded to explain to me why it would take that long, like they think that I care. Genuinely, they think that I care, that they've got 14 steps to get it from Cape Town to Joburg. I was like, dude, send it to the nearest postnet. I'll have it by tomorrow. No, we can't do that. Yeah, you see. And so yeah. part of that empowerment, so I think let's flip that around and talk about what are the opportunities. Mm. The opportunities are that that big sports retail chain can do a really roaring trade in online business if they change the way in which they actually handle the business side of it. Mm. And that's purely policies and procedures. And in my world, that's a quick one. That's Absolutely. a really quick one. So on board with that. You know, in my business, Booyah. Booyah. Um, Booyah. I love that name. Thank you so much. I had to get something that, that, that really gets my energy across. I'm all about and every energy. Time you, say, you don't just say it, do you? Huh? You, you don't just I'm say going, Booyah. I go, Booyah. 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 Exactly. What a cool name. <laughs> what we do is we do mystery shopping across five touch points, online and offline, um, to go and understand what the problems are within the organizations. And one of the things that I have noticed is there's a lot of businesses that have a lot of arrogance around the fact that they think that their systems work perfectly and that their systems are up to date. They're chasing the trends, always following the new. But at the end of the day, what they have and the foundations of the business is not working because they're drinking their own Kool-Aid. Because once you join a company, you no longer represent the, the customer. And that's why I, I do believe that independent research is paramount for organizations to start understanding what their customers have to say and what's really, really happening. Because I, sometimes I don't understand how they cannot see the problem. 
Couldn't agree with you more. I think that most organizations need to have a bunch of insights coming into their company. Uh, and those insights must be not only from employees, but they must also be from external sources. Um, and they must be regularly filtered into the organization. Mm. And I think one of the important things to do is to ensure that those insights are filtered into the organization at the most senior point possible. Mm. And then actions are taken from that. Mm. And I think very often people do research as more of a tick box to yeah. prove something. And often if you see the outcomes of research, you can see how the, the research was actually structured to affirm their thoughts and ideas exactly, as opposed <laughs> to find things. You know, one of the, one of the things we so do, true. one of the things we do in, in, in another part of our lives around this uh, diversity and inclusion work is we use a hashtag and it appears on our business cards and it appears on our brochures and it appears on our website. And the hashtag is be curious. Oh, I love that. And the reason we use that in that particular context, and it can be used in all contexts, is because if you're being curious at any one time, it's very difficult to be judgmental. It's very difficult not to actually be interested if you're being curious. So true. And so within an organization, they should be being curious about what is my customer experience without mm. expectations, without preordained ideas. They should just be curious. And if they were curious then they would think very differently about how they do things and how they test customer experience. And there's obviously a, a retail chain that's having a particular challenge at the moment around some um, customer issues. And if they just used Be Curious as their starting point, mm. they would understand exactly why they are receiving a backlash from customers that they are instead of, to me, seeming indignant. Yeah. But they're not in a space where they should be indignant. So I think curiosity um, about how your customers are doing, how they're handling things, uh, what their experience is, is critical. I, I think you're 100% right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's such a tough thing. And I think the more global the organization the bigger the problem because nobody makes decision and has to come from another mm. country, the, the the head of X, Y, and Z in India or in the UK. And um, I think that's also a massive problem. But the, the secret source is definitely getting it from the customers. Another thing is is this, this culture thing that we come up with ideas and we wait until it's perfect. And then before we get to launch it to market, I mean, I know of a company in South Africa that's been in beta stage on an idea for over three years. Haven't launched it yet. And then another company in the industry did it and they're like, they stole their, uh, our idea. Ideas and stealing of ideas is a whole big topic, which is not to be unpacked now. But there is a thing about, as you mentioned in your book, which really loved this chapter is beta culture. Talk me through the beta culture and what it brings. Beta as a concept has obviously been around forever. Um, my particular experience with beta uh, as an idea was around Windows 98 when it first came out and the, the beta versions of Windows 98 and the fact that on launch um, at the huge event that they had, the copy of Windows 98 that Bill Gates was actually working on crashed the computer right there and then. So to me, that's the worst example of the beta <laughs> culture. But essentially, beta is around the idea of start with something, get it as close to good enough right now as you can, get mm. it out into the market and begin the iteration process. And that also has a lot to do with the culture of a company. So a lot of companies work around perfection. It's got to be perfect. Research shows, and in fact, if you have a look at uh, books like um, Good to Great, they talk about the fact that there isn't a big difference between whether something is 95% correct and whether it's 100% correct. They also talk about the fact that most customers only ever need a delivery of between 88 and 90%. 
they don't need 100%. If you're doing 100%, you're overperforming, and that overperforming mm. is costing you money. Mm. So rather produce a product, get it out into the marketplace at 90%, then begin iteration of that with your customers mm. to get better and better. What that doesn't mean is produce a ballpoint pen that doesn't write and then iterate to get it to write properly. Yeah. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is practically everything that the customer will get out of that interaction with that product or service will be good and perfect and then you work from there. And I think that because of the business world that we live in today, where there is so much change, so rapidly, so many new things are being introduced all the time, we don't have time to wait for perfection, and perfection is unnecessary. So my idea around writing around the beta culture was to talk to people about the fact that they need to relook at the way in which they do research and development, mm -hmm. how they develop products, how they develop solutions, and shorten the amount of time to market for those products and solutions rapidly, um, reiterate, um, and change what it is that they, they need to change, get it back into the market with new stuff. We, do, we don't have time anymore to spend three years. Your example's three years. Who has time to spend three years on R&D? No, nobody, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. I actually want to go back to what you, you were talking about with um, research and development. I think also one of the biggest things that I, I've noticed, because innovation plays a very important role for me because I have a very big, uh, I have quite a broad um, technology background. And one of the things that I do realize is that we do research and development, as you say, to reinforce what we want to hear. We don't um, hear from customers. Now, mass market, what they're all about is co-creation. They want to help build products with you. So therefore, they want to have their voices heard and be connected to your brand. So because research and development is is flawed and using old-fashioned models, uh, I'm not going to name companies that has been doing the same model over and over. We as human beings have evolved tremendously. And therefore, the research and development, if it's not done in, in correctly, the ideas that we start working on in the first place and the prototypes are not the right ideas because we didn't start the, the research and development from the word go. Would you, would you say that's a true fact? You're 100% right because your baseline is the most important thing. So where you start from is the most important thing. When you talk about research and development, it all comes down to what is it I actually want to know? What, what do I want to know? And, yeah. and, then, and then it's about, well, who do I want to know that of? And then it's about what are the kind of questions I'm going to ask them that's going to give me that kind of insight? And when I get to the end of all of this, how am I going to know that I've got the right quality insight? So there's, there's a whole bunch of things around that baseline that is really critical. One of the things that I have noticed, especially in research and developments, we rely a lot on data. Data science is amazing. I'm a very big ambassador of it. I think it's incredibly sexy and informative and it can really divulge meaningful patterns. But the one thing is organizations and companies extract value from data to serve themselves, not the customer. And by doing that, the questions that are asked is not customer centric. It's risk adverse on profit models. Sure. And that's a huge conversation to be had around. So what is a business actually in existence for? And the primary thing that a business is in existence for is to serve the shareholders. And if it's there to serve the shareholders, then the customer is not at the center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a far bigger conversation to be had around that. And I think it's important that we discuss those kind of things because the number of data points that we have now should allow us to be able to um, have tremendous insight into our customers, into so what true. they do, when they do, what they buy, what they like, what they don't like. I mean, all we have to look at is um, the information that came out of uh, all the 
the Facebook scandals last year mm. and how insightful that information was. Actually, that was 2016 around the election. That, that information was incredibly insightful. Uh, when you start hearing that, on average, Facebook has 27,000 data points about each individual. And if so you scary. interact with uh, Facebook less than 100 times, they can predict what you will purchase. That's how much data they have about you. They have almost 100% accuracy rate after 98 interactions in telling what you will buy. Wow, that's amazing. So why isn't everybody else doing that? Why isn't everybody else looking at data of customers and saying, how can I serve you better? And I think Thank that you. that's the fine line, though. It's I've got stuff to sell. Mm. I need to sell it. How do I best sell it? As opposed to what is my customer looking for from me that I have a group of products or services that I can deliver to them and let me deliver to them. So it all depends on where you're coming from. And I also think that there isn't one single right answer. You may be an organization that produces a bunch of products. How are you going to sell those bunch of products? Uh, who are you going to sell them to? What channels are you going to use? So it all depends on where you're sitting in the business scheme of things. And another thing that uh, you touched on in your book, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is giving me goosebumps. What is he, what is he going to say? It starts off with a chapter saying, consultants suck. It's a bum rap. And then I thought to myself, oh my gosh, <laughs> must I change my business model? But then you go into, into what's a good consultant and a bad consultant. Maybe you can just quickly give us a synopsis of what, what is really a, a good consultant. So on the consultant side, I think my challenge has always been that I've essentially acted in a consultant role for most of my business life. I've done consulting of some form or other. And so I tend to feel that consultants have value because I like to think that I have value. And my point around consultants is more about your business needs outsiders to get a better view of it. Mm. You can't rely only on your own view of your business. You need to talk to people outside. And that's where consultants come into the game. It's not about the fact that all consultants suck because not all consultants do. Mm. It's about the fact that some consultants suck and guess what? Don't use them. Mm. A bit of research will tell you who those people are because the industry knows. Any particular industry that you work within, they know who the bad people are. Do some research and find out. But consultants offer great value to organizations because they're able to give them insights that they haven't previously had, generally give them actionables that they wouldn't have thought of themselves because they don't know the business. They're not locked into, as you referred to it, the Kool-Aid. They haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, they don't think that this business is the best thing since sliced bread. They're coming in almost as objectively as you could under the circumstances. You can't come in 100% objectively. But that objectivity is very, very important for insight. Very important. I totally agree. And I think that independent part is, is paramount, um, you know, to, to get the message across. Another thing that you really, um, that is a very valuable thing to learn about is um, the next generation of employees. Talk me through that. They're actually the current incoming generation of employees. And this is one of the things, uh, I assume you're, you're referring specifically to millennials. Millen right. Millen so, so this is part of the conversation which always gets entertaining and heated and people get upset and... I think the most important thing to understand is uh, I've written about millennials several times in this book and none of it is in a disparaging way. So I don't see millennials in a way that is there to make jokes about them um, or to call them names or to look down on them, which is I think what a lot of people do and which quite frankly is easy to do. If you have a look at some of the traits that they have, the characteristics that they have as a generation, millennials are just a way of describing a group of people and their general characteristics and how they respond and what they're interested in and what their hot spots are and that kind of stuff. Those people are 
great when you look at them as an average, but they're not fantastic when you look at them as individuals. And talking about millennials is not about prescribing either. It's just about understanding how do you deal with this group of people who are generationally different from other people, and how do you work with them best, get the best out of them, because they're all just human beings. They all just have a set of skills. They all just have cool stuff to offer. And how do we just work with them? How do we work with millennials that are different from us? And I know that they're different because I have kids that are millennials and they're not the same as me. They don't think the same as me. Their friends are not the same. I work mm -hmm. with people. I interview people. They're not the same as me. Exactly the same as a 65-year-old doesn't think the same as me. And I think we, we've just created something out of it which can be a little bit nasty at times. Totally. You know, we call them lazy. We, you know, we call them sit on their ass and do nothings. It's, it's unnecessary. And they need purpose. Um, they are definitely driven by that. And that's okay. You know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with having a generation that needs to have a purpose to get behind and yeah. do something. The point is don't use it in a disparaging way. Use it as a way that you understand a set of human beings and you work with them well. 100%. I mean, and that's a very, I mean, that topic also can be stretched out so far um, because, you know, that cross-pollination that needs to happen in your organization, they have a lot of value to bring. Tremendous amount of value. And if you look at organizations, you'll find so many that actually don't have sufficient millennials in management positions. Mm. And that's a challenge. Mm. You actually have to have a good set of diversity across an organization in order to be able to understand your target markets. It's it's much like the conversation has been had in the advertising industry for many years. How can you have a creative team creating adverts that, for example, are focused on a black community and there's not a single black person on the creative team? How the hell do you do that? I know. That How is can something you possibly I have about. an appropriate yeah. set of insights? Yeah. You can't. So it's the same thing. Where is your diversity in your organization? Have you got generational diversity, color diversity, age diversity, all that kind of stuff? Wow. We have so much to talk about. This book is absolutely incredible, but we are running out of time. So I want to ask you to questions for our audience, um, which is obviously also aligned with your book and dive into that. What does the future fit mean to you? It, it means so many different things on so many different levels. And if we talk specifically about my book, what future fit is in, in relation to swimming with sharks is that the book is about trying to prepare people to be able to be much better at the stuff that they want to do. It's, that's simply what it's about. So I take complex subjects, I make them really simple and easy to understand in 2,000 words or less, one subject per chapter, and there's tons of chapters. So there's a lot of information about doing business, about living, about authenticity, about integrity, about honesty, about beta culture, about all these different things. And, and basically, I'm helping people to be able to do better tomorrow than they were doing today. Because if we're not improving even if it's just in very, very small ways, we're just slowly but surely starting to slip backwards. And I take that into my own life as well. I, I've started using a, I've been using a hashtag for just over a year now called My Impossible. And it accompanies nice. the things that I do. Uh, and one of the first things that I do that led me to do that was I went through quite a big weight loss. I w lost 45 kilos. So I, I, I use a, My Impossible and that's my future fit. I that's saying, it. how do I make myself the person that I want to be and see tomorrow so that I can do the best that I can do. If you could give a person one piece of advice to the listeners, how to become more future fit in a complex world, what would it be? Uh, so I'll be that guy and I'll say there's two things. The first thing is uh, <laughs> that it's never over. It's never over. You've never stopped learning. 
you've never stopped growing. You have to continually ask questions because you won't get to be a better person. And that's, that's the one side. The other side is never give up. There will always be failures. There will always be things that get in your way. There will always be naysayers and people who tell you, nah, dude, that's a cock idea. Mm. Always try again because that's how every one of the really, really big businesses around the world, that's, that's how those founders made it. They made it because they had an innate belief in, first of all, their idea and secondly, in themselves to be able to achieve that idea and create that success. Then they created the cult, which we spoke about earlier. <laughs> and so if you put that in, never give up. Uh, you will face failure and it's only by doing it again and again and again that you create that recipe for success within yourself. And that tends to be a sense of self-belief that I can do it. I love that. Now over to less serious things. We're going to play a game now, but I think the audience is going to laugh at both of us because I need to try and pronounce this word. So the game, word game for today is that I'm going to give you a long word and you need to come up with words in 60 seconds and you have to call them out to us. Now, I'm going to read the word out. It's the longest word and actually has a meaning. Here's what they say. The longest word in any of the major English language dictionaries is pneumono ultra microscopics cyanosis. I hope I said that right. If I didn't, I'm apologizing in advance. A word that refers to a lung disease contracted from the inhalation of a very fine, what, you know what, it's just go and Google it. Who cares? Who cares? All I want to say is it refers back to what you say in your book. Keep it simple. Doctors sure as hell don't know how to keep it simple. This is a terrible thing. Okay. On your marks, get set, go. Thanks for putting me on the spot. So I'm going to go with uh, pneumonia. Um, I'll go with microscope. I'll go with microscopics. Um, and we're talking any words here. Any huh? words. And so I'll go with ill. Uh, tram. Is anyone writing these down? I'm keeping track. Uh, I will go with mono. I will go with out. I will go with ultra. I will go with isis. Oh! I will go with conscious. <laughs> I will go with convoluted. Uh, silicon, uh, silicosis, can, um, osmosis, um, lot, load, uh, neutral, wow, <laughs> did I say icon, Five, four, I, I don't know if three, I said icon, two, ill, picks, if if my if I could do this properly is twenty four words. You have done a sterling job. That means you need to write the next book. Okay. Okay. No problem. Because you know your words. No problem. I'll try that. <laughs> Thank, thanks for putting me on the spot with that. That was awesome. <laughs> All right, Gavin. It was such an honor to meet you today, and it was so lovely having you in studio. I have found this so informative. Your book is amazing. Where can people go and buy your book? Thank you. I uh, really loved being here. Um, it is available at all exclusive books, um, CNAs, uh, Scoobs, um, also as a Kindle version. Uh, oh, nice. And it is also available through Our Books Direct or Exclusive Books Online. Um, basically, Google Swimming with Sharks, and um, you can have it in your hands in three days. Fantastic. Well, for all of you guys out there, keep yourself book fit. 
always try and read a book. I would say the average should be at least four books a month. Try and get that done and um, definitely get this book. It really does make a difference. It's a pocket guide as to really how to propel your business forward. Thank you so much. Stay tuned and always keep on listening to become future fit. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.